Good morning. He is risen. Oh, there's more of you in here than that. He is risen. Yes, and we proclaim with the angels that first resurrection morning. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, for he has risen. Happy Resurrection Sunday. My name is Randy Pauley. I serve as one of the pastors here, and we have many reasons to rejoice this morning. The title of the sermon, for those who are taking notes, and I often encourage those who attend here regularly to take notes, is The Mark of the Beast and the Victory of the Lamb. The Mark of the Beast and the Victory of the Lamb. April 22nd, today is April 21st, April 22nd, the year was 1945, on the island of Maui, this island, the first Baptist church of Kahului was organized April 22nd, 1945. In July of that year, the name would be changed to Kahului Baptist Church. So, Happy birthday, KBC. You are 74 years old. <laughs> 74 years young, I should say, tomorrow, and we just planted a church. So maybe we can be like Abraham and Sarah, and when we're 100, have a baby. <laughs> and many more, and many more. Praise God for the work he has done at KBC and the work he is doing in our church plant over, over in Waiehu. If it's your first time or the first time in a long time, we have been in the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse of John. Now you might wonder, what on earth, what, this is a very peculiar Resurrection Sunday passage, is it not? The, the Mark of the Beast on Easter. This seems a little out of place, but I hope by the end of the sermon you find that actually it is very relevant and very connected this morning. But before we get there, an overview. Oh, and what an overview we have. If you haven't been with us, I'm going to assume a lot of things in this sermon. So you might, most of you are familiar with only one perspective on Revelation, namely the, the formal title is the Dispensational Futurist Approach. It is actually the youngest of all the perspectives in church history, um, and I gave a number of reasons for that in an earlier sermon, uh, but that's the one you are most, most of you are familiar with. This has been popularized in books like the Left Behind series. Anybody ever heard of that? Right? So, yeah, so many of you. Uh, the Schofield Study Bible, Dallas Theological Seminary, very faithful pastors and preachers coming out of there. But this is the dominant viewpoint, the futurist understanding of Revelation. In fact, if, if you even think of the book of Revelation, you probably think of it in futuristic terms by default, maybe not even aware that there are other approaches and other perspectives. And we have examined four of those in our time together, four different perspectives. And, and I, I don't have time to review all of those with you. But suffice it to say, if you are here, I understand my audience 
is primarily familiar with the dispensational futurist approach. And what I want you to know, mainly, is we are not taking that approach to the book of Revelation in our study. So if it sounds weird or things sound like, what, how did he get that? It, that's why, all right? Uh, and I'm very familiar with that approach. That's what my formal theological training was in, in college and undergrad and all those things. So I grew up in churches like that, but that is not the perspective we are taking. However, let me say, if you are familiar with that perspective, if you believe that perspective, there are many godly, faithful pastors and proclaimers of the gospel that believe that, who have done my soul much good and continue to do my soul much good. And so I hope this morning you don't feel like, I, he's saying things I don't agree with. I hope out of this morning that you, you focus on what we all agree on. He is risen, and he is coming again, and he is victorious. And that you take this maybe as a learning opportunity to hear, a, oh, that's a different perspective, whether you agree with it or not. So uh, that's, that's going to explain a lot of the maybe things that confuse you if you haven't been with us this whole time. But the book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible before the famous book of Concordance. Uh, the first book would be Genesis, and then the last would be Revelation, the bookends. And we have covered Genesis and at length in 2015. We covered the Gospel of John. We covered the epistle of 1 John. So we have a good understanding of how the Apostle John writes. And we find that the Apostle John is writing to Christians in the first century, and these Christians are suffering awful, terrible persecution under the emperor, the Roman emperor, Domitian. And many of them are being killed and are suffering, much like our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka this Easter day who died. Three bombs were detonated, 200 killed across three different churches and several hotels and attack. So I want you to see that while the suffering in the first century is what is before the reader's context, the original audience, there is much application to us today as our brothers and sisters today, this minute, are grieving under a terroristic attack. The culture in that day was hostile. The church was facing a hostile imperial cult. And it is a very similar culture to what Daniel faced under Babylonian rule in the Old Testament. And so John is writing to encourage the church to remain faithful, to persevere, to not compromise their faith. And in the process, we get a very vivid, now imagine in the first century, you don't have IMAX theaters, you don't have uh, iPhones, there's no YouTube to browse, you don't have any of those things to show you a picture. And so if you wanted to have a very vivid display of imagination, Revelation would have been it. It would have been it. You have dragons with seven heads and ten horns and beasts with fire and swords and flames and people calling down fire out of heaven and you have all these vivid pictures that that were meant to give the first readers great hope even amidst very dark times in a very impressionable form 
John has done this through a series of letters throughout the book of Revelation. We saw seven letters. Many of you are familiar with the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. We saw visions of seven seals, a seven-sealed scroll written on both sides. We saw a lamb as standing as though slain, right? This very vivid visual We saw seven trumpets. We'll see seven bulls. We've heard about seven thunders, and that number seven is very important in the book of Revelation. It stands for completeness, the complete people of God. As we saw, why are there only seven letters to seven churches when there are more than seven churches in Asia Minor at the time? There is no letter to Colossae, to Aeropolis. They don't get a shout out. Why is that? Because the letters were the, for the complete people of God wherever they may be found, you see. We see the same pattern of seven trumpets, seven seals, because this is a book of completion, finality, the end, complete judgment, complete redemption, complete final purpose of God brought to consummation when his kingdom comes. And so seven and threes are very common in the book. We've seen that the book of Revelation is classified as apocalyptic literature. This is very important. It is apocalyptic literature. How many of you have ever read Jewish first century apocalyptic literature? Maybe one of you. Exactly, exactly. It's not a form we have common in our day, but it was very common in the first century. The book of Elisha, for instance, that's referenced in Jude. There's various other Jewish books like this. If you were to read about three to five hundred pages of apocalyptic literature, you would be bored, confused out of your mind, but nonetheless, you would have a better appreciation of how revelation unfolds. It is apocalyptic literature. By definition, it's highly symbolic. It's very visual. It's dualistic often, evil and good. It's full of heavenly creatures and mediators between heaven and earth, and we see all of these things unfolded in John's revelation. It was a very common form of literature in that day. However, it's not in ours, and this reason, this is one of the reasons why revelation is so mysterious to so many. It is so intriguing, sometimes fear-inducing. You just kind of, I'm going to stay off limits of revelation because I don't really understand it, and I can't really get it. That's why there's so much controversy and speculation. The chapter of 13 with the mark of the beast, especially so. And so we've seen all of these things. Now you have a 10-minute overview. I've been trying to walk through this book in accordance with how John's readers would have understood it. We've been trying to walk through it to see that the, the real key to understanding Revelation is to know the Old Testament well. And we don't know our Old Testament well. It cites the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. And so this is a picture book designed to fill God's people, us, today and at all times with great hope in a dark and hostile world. Resurrection Sunday is a time that we take concerted effort in remembering the life, death, and especially the resurrection of Jesus. So that being the case, it is a beautiful day, is it not? The sun is shining. We'll have an egg hunt. 
But I am reminded that life isn't sunshine for many of us just because today is a holiday. For many of you, life is quite hard. You enter here maybe with strained marriages, struggles with family and children, difficulties at work, perhaps a chronic health issue that you just can't seem to find rest or treatment for, or just the general hardships of life. They don't go away just because it's Easter, do they? No, in fact, today for many, it is quite painful. And so let's pray and see what beautiful encouragement God's Word has for us this morning. Father in heaven, we desperately need your Spirit. We need your Spirit to guide us into all truth. We need your Spirit to stir spiritual life in every single one of us, to cause us to hate sin and compromise and stir us and direct us to cling to Jesus, the true Savior of all who believe. And so would you exalt the Lamb this morning? Would you exalt Christ in this church? Would you exalt Christ in Waihu Community Church? Would you exalt Christ among the nations and in the state of Hawaii to the glory and praise of your great name? And it's in your name we ask these things. Amen. All right, I have three points. Three points. Number one, a seductive beast. Number one, we have a seductive beast. Now, the first beast, if you weren't here last week, was exceedingly terrifying. He had seven heads, ten horns. We saw that it was a, a throwback to Daniel chapter 7. So I know you're not maybe familiar with Daniel 7 off the top of your head, but there Daniel the prophet sees a vision of four beasts, four different beasts. This beast in Revelation is a composite. He brings together elements of all of those beasts in Daniel 7. They looked, this one beast looked like a leopard with feet like a bear and mouth like a lion and, and seven heads. And what do we say? Anything with more than one head is a monster. It's a monster, okay? It's terrifying. We saw that it was symbolic of institutions throughout history, namely the states that at different times can be satanically empowered to oppose and oppress the people of God, the advance of the gospel, and creation in general. As John the Apostle said in 1 John 2.18, so now many antichrists have come. And so that first beast is representative of the state and its leaders who oppose and oppress the people of God and the advance of the gospel. We covered that last week. If you're like, how in the world did you get that from that? Go to our website, callowaybaptist.com. Check out the sermon on Revelation 13, 1 through 10. But for now, we move on. You can rest assured, it being symbolic that there will be no beast that rises out of the Pacific Ocean like in Godzilla and wreaks havoc across our land. It's not the picture. Now today, we see the second beast. The first beast was exceedingly terrible, but now this second beast completes what we can call the satanic trinity, the unholy trinity. We, in Revelation chapter 12, we saw Satan described like a great red seven-headed dragon. 
who persecuted the people of God. He persecuted Jesus and was unsuccessful. And now in his anger, his wrath is turned toward the church, the people of God. That was Revelation 12. That was the first beast. Then we saw the second beast that I just described, the composite of Daniel chapter 7. Now we have the third beast, the completion of the unholy trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, Satan, Antichrist, And this beast later in Revelation is called the false prophet in Revelation 16 and following. The first beast was called and made war against the saints and prevails for a season. The second beast is slightly different. That's why he's seductive. He's beautiful. He's not as terrifying as the first. He actually is described like a lamb with two horns, gentle peaceful, cute even. How many of you have ever seen a lamb before? Now, be honest, how many of you were ever scared of that lamb? Exactly, nobody, nobody. You're not afraid of lambs. We aren't terrified by sheep. And this beast doesn't look like a beast at all. He looks like a what? A lamb. A lamb with two horns. Side note, who is the only other lamb mentioned in the book of Revelation so far? Revelation chapter 5, the lamb standing as slain before the throne with seven horns and seven eyes. Again, this is Satan's mimicking of the true king. Why does he have two horns? Two reasons. Two reasons why he has two horns. Number one, this is a throwback to Daniel chapter 8. There's another vision after the first vision of four terrible beasts. And Daniel 8, he sees a ram with two horns that represent the Medes and the Persians. So that's one reason. Second reason is it's likely that he is aping the role of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, and we saw there those two witnesses represent the church and her prophetic voice, proclaiming God's truth to the world, and this beast is called the false prophet, so he is aping those who proclaim God's truth as a false teacher. So the picture we have is this cute, dainty, peaceful lamb with two horns, and then a surprising thing happens, doesn't it? When he speaks, it's not a lamb's voice. What is it? He speaks with the voice of a dragon. See how vivid this is? Can you, you can picture that, can't you? This demonstrates the satanic, blasphemous nature of the things this pseudo-lamb says. And yet, it's all cloaked in a peaceful and cute package. And this lamb entices the world and its inhabitants to worship the first beast, i.e. the state. Now you're like, what? Why would anybody worship the state? We'll get there. We'll get there. And this lamb is empowered to do incredible, seemingly miraculous signs by which it deceives people, calling fire down from heaven into worshiping the first beast, even making images of the first beast, the state. And those images seemingly come to life, and therefore people see this miraculous sign and worship the beast, the first beast, even more. 
This lamb punishes detractors who refuse with torment and death for failure to worship the first beast. So that's an overview of the passage. Now, what exactly is going on here, right? How, what is happening, this first beast? If it's to stay, how is it making images that talk and all these kind of things? The backstory goes a long way in helping. History is very helpful. The ancient Roman Empire... The leaders known as Caesar, Caesar Augustus, Caesar Nero, on and on, they believed themselves to be actual, literal gods. The imperial cult of Rome demanded worship to the Caesars, and that worship was to be demonstrated by by the citizens of Rome and the nations it had conquered. So, as a result, in various cities and towns throughout the Roman Empire, statues, statues, images of the Caesars or the current emperor would be erected. And if you lived in those areas, because you likely couldn't travel to Rome at great cost to yourself, you could worship from afar. You could pay tribute from a distance. And so you'd be pressured to do so, and you would be coerced through various means to demonstrate your loyalty to Rome by offering sacrifices to the image of Caesar, the God. Now, historical records show that Christians had to demonstrate their recognition of Caesar as God, and the way they were enticed to do that was, is just so simple. Just offer a pinch of salt at the altar. Just, it's just an image. Just offer a pinch of salt and all suffering stops. Just, just do it. It's a small, menial offering. It doesn't cost much. Just, just a pinch of salt at the statue. And of course, Christians would not comply because Christians would not say in Greek, kurios kaiser, Lord Caesar. They said kurios Christos, Lord Christ. As a result, under various emperors such as Nero, Domitian, they suffered terribly to varying degrees. Sometimes this was economic penalization. Other times it was more violent and gruesome. And this is exactly the backdrop of what's being referenced with the mention of how the second beast, the false teachers, the false prophets enticed people to worship the first beast and make images of the first beast to worship it. So we learn a few things from this. First, it seems foreign to us here in America to think of the state, the government, power, and religious worship combined, isn't it? That's, that's a notion that causes us great angst. Our culture is quick to speak about the separation of church and state. Anytime there's even a hint of religious establishment afloat. But that's not been the norm throughout the history of the world. It is actually not the norm throughout the history of our current day. Many countries today, this is still the normative. It is very common in many countries to see political legislation, economic ideas, military power, and religious practices and beliefs all intertwined, not separated. 
If you were to travel to the Middle East, certain countries in Asia, many of them, parts of China, this is the norm. There is no separation of church and state. In some countries, actually, if you speak to some missionaries, it would be seen as abnormal to have a business or a practice in which you did not speak about the God you worship. That would be very abnormal in some countries. That would be foreign to them. The reason for this is we can't help it. As creatures, we are made to worship something. If we don't worship the true God, we'll worship one of two things, either the created order, and so you have people who worship the sun, the moon, stars, various cultures, or you'll worship the next closest thing to God, what the Bible says was created in his image and likeness. Who is that? Us. Is there any wonder why the self-help book section in most bookstores is so huge? Look within, the spark of the divine within. You have everything you need to be all that you want. You'll either worship creation or that which is created in his image, namely yourself. We'll talk about more about how that works out in our culture in the next point. But see, for now, the, the norm throughout the church history is that state and religious worship are often intertwined. Second thing we learn is that through this picture of a lamb that speaks like a dragon is that false worship can be beautiful, can't it? If you've ever gone, gone to other countries and seen other religious practices, it is beautiful, no doubt. The ingenuity, the creativity, Noah Brennan shared this morning about how, how our God came down, but in other countries you have to climb up and ascend sometimes very remote temples. And I just remembered, I had a flashback when he was talking about that, uh, of when I was in China, just in the middle of nowhere, just in the sticks. There's nothing, there's, there's no electricity, there's nothing out here. And there, sure enough, on a mountain far in the distance, we would see a beautiful massive temple ascending up the slopes. Mind-blowing. Religion, false teaching, can be beautiful. And that's why this beast is called the false prophet. It represents false religious systems and false teachers that depart from the truth of God's word and entice people both outside and inside the church to compromise their faith. These teachers are often very kind, winsome, likable. They're generally people you know, people you love, have served with. They sound tolerant and plausible. And when they speak, make no mistake, it is the voice of a dragon. Can you think of anybody like this in our day? I can think of many who advocate worship of the state and distortions of true Christianity. People who say things like, if you have a problem with me, take it up with my creator. In general, false teachers in our day harp on God's love, grace, and mercy and ignore his holiness, righteousness, and justice. They gloss over human sin or accountability or responsibility of any kind, all while they may say good and true things about God or Jesus and in general live or speak like the devil. 
Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 4 and 5, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So that's what's depicted here, the voice of false teachers and false religious institutions. It's a seductive beast. Number two, a sinister symbol in verse 16 to 18. A sinister symbol. We see that this second beast causes all, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to worship the image of the beast. Now, Recall the book of Daniel. That's what's in the backdrop here. Recall the book of Daniel, and this is a famous story. There's, there's two very famous stories. There's a king, the emperor of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and he erects a what? An image, doesn't he? A giant image. And he, under royal edict, says, whoever does not bow down to this image at the appropriate time will be what? thrown, killed. And there's one man who refused to bow down, isn't there? What was his name? Where did he get thrown? Into the lion's den, that's right. There was three friends also in the book of Daniel. You know these three? Shadrach, Meshach, and a bumblebee, if you're familiar with Veggie Tales. Uh, Abednego. And those three friends also refused to worship the image. And they were thrown where? Into a fiery furnace. Very interesting. If you come back next week, we're going to talk about the last of Revelation 14 and how the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. That's no coincidence with Daniel in the backdrop. This is what's in the backdrop. This beast erects an image and commands all to worship it. And he marks people, his followers, with a mark. We saw in chapter 7, if you weren't here, in chapter 7, God's people are also marked, aren't they? They have a seal, the seal of God upon their forehead, as we're going to see in chapter 14. Interesting that many people don't talk about the mark of God on people's forehead. Many of you maybe don't even know that God's people have a mark on their forehead. But they do, a seal. And this beast also marks his people. And this is the focus of so much speculation, the, the mark of the beast. Has anybody ever heard of the mark of the beast in here? All of you, all of you. What is it? Six, six, six. What is that? I've been told and grew up believing for a while. It's barcodes, barcodes. They have 666 embedded in them. These are what people say. Let me just say at the outset, in case you tune in because you're not paying attention, and you, then you think you missed this part. You think, oh, he's saying that this is the mark of the beast. I'm not saying any of these things I'm about to say are the mark of the beast, all right? Hear me say that. I don't agree with what I'm about to say. These are what other people say the mark of the beast are. I will tell you what I think. But I've been told it's barcodes. I've been told it's radio frequency ID chips or RFID chips, little things that go in your hand. And Google is having Google parties about them. And, and you can just, you don't even have to 
get a bank account. It's just ping on the chip right there. Sweet. I'm like, that's kind of convenient, actually. But I still wouldn't want it in my hand because there's other reasons like tracking and information and things like that. RFID chips, I've been told, are the mark of the beast. Uh, why? Because he says you cannot buy and sell without this mark. So this is how some of these things get going, right? A barcode you can't buy or sell without some sort of chip in your debit card and these types of things. Here's a fun one. I was at work one day, before pastor, and I was drinking one of these, and I did buy this this morning, and I, and I did drink it before the sermon. It's about the first time I've had one in a very long time, and my wife pleaded with me not to do it, and, and I should have listened to my wife. Uh, I was standing back there before I preached, and my heart rate was 96 beats per minute. <laughs> and whew, I was like, I'm out of breath. I don't know why. <laughs> this is husbands, we should listen to our wives more. Amen, ladies? All right, that's for free. Um, but I was at work one day, and and I was drinking one of these. It was a long shift that particular day, and uh, so I needed a little pick-me-up, and my coworker turned and said, I, I stopped drinking those. And I was like, oh, it's because it's, like, bad for you or something, or why not good? He's like, no, it's satanic. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I said, what? He said, that's the mark of the beast. And he went on this elaborate, very serious. He was very, very serious. He elaborate scheme of why monster energy drinks are in part the mark of the beast and and he part of that is he said these little things it looks like an m but really it's the hebrew letter for six 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 vav if you psalm 119 verse 41 you'll see the sixth letter of the hebrew alphabet which would also stand for the number six is <gasps> Ooh, six, six, six. And if you, if you look at the slogan on the can, it says, Unleash the Beast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And I'm not done yet. The monster at the bottom has a cross and the O. And when you drink it, it flips the cross upside down. Also a satanic sign. Therefore, the mark of the beast, don't drink a monster energy drink. That is just, I, I just, it was just ridiculous and foolish. And I said, I love Jesus with all my heart, and I will enjoy this monster energy drink. And if, if you got a pack of monster energy drinks from Costco, give them to me, and I will drink the mark of the beast. Nonsense. Church history has identified all sorts of people with this number. The, the discipline is called gematria or gematria, if you're not familiar with it. it. It is the ancient practice, and it was practiced, of assigning letters in the alphabet to numbers. And when you added those things up in different names and various so on and so on, you get various arithmetic formulas for a name. So, for instance, in our culture, A would be 1, B would be C would be, and so on and so forth, up to number 11, they would go in 10s, 10, 20, 30, right, and so on and so forth. And so how it worked and functioned in the ancient world. And if you were to do that, oh dear, the list is never ending. It starts with Nero. Some would say Nero's name uh, spelled out and amounted to 666, but it depends on a misspelling of his name, so that doesn't quite fit. Uh, others have proposed Adolf Hitler, 
the Pope was very uh, popular throughout Catholic Church history to be called the beast, and uh, Muslims have been the proposed understanding of this by some. Uh, Mussolini, oh, here's a good one. Ronald Wilson Reagan, three words, six letters each, and he lived on a street address of 666. He actually had to change it to 667 because all the hoopla arounding this ridiculousness. Elvis, JFK, FDR, Mikhail Gorbachev, he had this birthmark on his forehead. Bill Clinton, pretty much any sitting Democratic president normally gets called the beast or the false prophet. <laughs> it's true. It's just the way it is. It's just it never ends. And the speculation of who this mark identifies, I disagree with all of those. What is it? Well, if that's what I would suggest, it's not what is it. I'd suggest the meaning is far less entertaining probably won't give you as many good Christian conspiracy theories as you might enjoy, and who doesn't like a good conspiracy theory? I would say it's playing on the mark of God, God's seal. It's a contrast. It is a parody, a satanic parody of God's seal of his people. In chapter 7, we saw in the ancient world, even in the Old Testament law, and Levitical law, provisions were made for a slave who wanted to stay with his master, if his master was good or generous or benevolent, and he said, I want to stay with my master. I don't want to leave. I don't want to be free. You're a good employer, a good boss. I will serve you all the days of my life. There was a, a custom that he could receive a brand of sorts. He could have his ear bored through in a hole made indicating that he was owned and allegiance to his master. So slaves would get a brand, much like a cattle would. Another group of people who would get a brand would be soldiers. Soldiers in the ancient world would receive a mark. Even today we practice this, don't we? Anybody serve in the military? Thank you for your service. I mean that, military child. So I appreciate the service of men and women who serve our country. And I won't ask you this, but many soldiers often have a tattoo representing either the branch they served in or their division or something of that nature. It was the same in the first century. They would have a mark, and this brand or mark would indicate either ownership, therefore protection and accountability, or allegiance, or both. Paul references this type of practice in Galatians 6, 17. He says, from now on, let nobody cause me any trouble, for I bear on my body, here it is, the marks of Jesus. Paul is saying he was a, a loyal soldier to Christ. His allegiance was with Jesus. What John is saying is just as the 144,000 have God's seal, so too Satan's followers are marked by their allegiance to him through false worship and are characterized by obedience to him. We have at least two clues that this 666 is not referencing any individual person specifically. Two clues from Revelation that this is not designed for us to say, 
who's got, what, what is Pastor Randy's number of his name? Maybe Pastor Randy is the false prophet, 666, right? None of those things, right? We have two clues from the text, okay? The first clue is when John a- intends to draw the reader's attention to Hebrew or Greek, the original language, when he intends to do that, he says specifically so in the text, like Revelation 9, verse 11. He says, they have his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in, watch this, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. So he draws the reader's attention to the original language for a reason. So when John intends to notify the reader about Hebrew or Greek, he says so specifically. He doesn't do that here. That's reason number one. Number two, in Revelation 21, 17, we see a measurement of a wall of the heavenly city. Literally in Greek, in Revelation 21, 17, it's the same sentence structure. It's translated, if you were to translate it literally, so here we see uh, he measured a wall, 144 cubits, here it is, by human measurement. That literally is the same Greek construction. If I was going to translate that, it would literally be translated the measurement of a man. The measurement of a man. This is not referencing a specific man's measurement. Rather, it means human measurements in general and is therefore translated accordingly in the ESV to by human measurements. It'd be different if it said the measurement of the man. The absence of the definite article, the, and instead you have the measurement of a man, is referring to mankind in general. It is that same Greek construction found here in Revelation 13. The mark of a man. It's not referring to an individual specifically, but rather the idea is it's the number of fallen humanity through which Satan exercises his demonic plans and purposes. Remember, before Jesus died, he turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's referencing fallen humanity that is opposed to the purpose and plan of God. And so why 666? I would propose it is simply one less than 777. Seven has recurred through Revelation repeatedly so far. And three sixes is a reference to the parody of the unholy trinity. One scholar put it this way, I quote, The beast is the supreme representative of unregenerate humanity separated from God and unable to achieve divine likeness, but always trying, close quote. The supreme representative of unregenerate humanity, that's what it is. And is this marking in the first century may very well have been literal as the Roman Empire had a way to keep track of those who were faithful to the imperial cult. Today it may look slightly differently. But make no doubt about it, economic warfare is increasing. It has already exists in many parts of the world. 
You can read of natural disasters that occur in various countries that are non-Christian, and many times the Christians are the last one to receive aid if they get it at all. I referenced a few weeks ago how Yale University, Yale Law School, where most, where I believe uh, the majority of the sitting Supreme Court justices, Yale Law School, is now denying student aid to Christians or people who volunteer in what they deem as anti-LGBTQ groups. Volunteer. Yale is denying them student aid. That is a form of economic warfare. In Hawaii, a piece of legislation was passed two years ago in the state aimed at less than five pregnancy centers scattered across the state, mandating those pregnancy centers, privately funded religious organizations, to refer women to clinics where they can receive an abortion, even though the practice is clearly against the mission and beliefs of these privately funded organizations. It went so far as to specify regulations for signage and penalties for failure to comply. If that legislation was upheld, it would effectively cause these organizations to either follow the edict or they'd rack up so many financial penalties they'd be forced to shut down. Thankfully, that legislation was struck down by the courts when challenged, but it doesn't mean they're done trying. And you have to ask, why would politicians with so many pressing matters take their time and aim at five private pregnancy centers across the state who provide free care to women in need? Why would they do that? Because the satanically empowered state and false teachers associated with it demand that Christians not only tolerate its practices, but celebrate and participate in them as well. And they are willing to wage economic warfare to make it happen. This mark is a symbolic number in the first century and now that indicates allegiance to and ownership by satanic entities. Number three, a standing lamb. A standing lamb. Now, you're still like, what does this have to do with Easter? You ready? Final leg. Here we go. I love this picture. In John 5, John heard somebody mention a lion as he's weeping. Who can open the seal and who is worthy to break the scroll? And nobody's found worthy in all creation. And so John starts to weep. And then he hears, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He hears about a lion. And then he turns and sees not a lion. He sees a, a lamb. And then in chapter 7, we saw John heard the number of the sealed people of God. He heard it. He didn't see it. He heard 144,000. And then halfway through Revelation 7, he turns and he sees now an innumerable multitude worshiping the lamb. Now it's reversed in chapter 14. Now he sees, and I looked, and, and behold, and then he hears something, and, and what does he see? I want you to get this picture. Since chapter 12, we have had this description of a satanic dragon. We've had, in chapter 13, two vicious beasts, all who hate the people of God, who wage war against God and hate his purposes. 
the unholy trinity. He uses every available means to make them suffer. And you be asking over these two chapters, rightly so, what hope is there? People even proclaim, who can wage war against the beast? Who is as great as the beast? And then in the very next line of chapter 14, John says, I looked and I beheld on Mount Zion, and what does he see? A lamb standing, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on his head. I love that picture. He lifts his gaze after seeing these vicious beasts. He lifts his gaze, and there standing is a lamb, not a false lamb who speaks like a dragon. No, this is the true lamb, the real lamb, who has seven horns, complete power, complete sovereignty. This is the lamb of whom John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the lamb that Paul, the apostle, called our Passover lamb. This is the lamb foreshadowed in the book of Genesis by Abraham when he offered up his only son of promise, Isaac, on an altar. And you know the story. God spared him in the last second, didn't he? By providing a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. The irony of that whole passage is that many years later, as God spared Abraham's son, God would not spare his own son, the true lamb, who would actually die in the place of sinners because the wages of sin is death. We need to understand on Easter, hear this, your first time in church or first time in a long time, forgiveness is not free. If you broke God's law, you continue to, we all do, you need forgiveness. And the wages of sin, the penalty of breaking God's law is death. Somebody has to die for you to be forgiven. And Christ died for sinners, for all who repent and believe in him. And I will say this morning, if you are here and if you turn from your sin, if you believe, trust, Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You will get full pardon. Complete forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus Christ. And John, after seeing this dark, vicious beast, lifts his eyes. He sees standing, not dead anymore. He's alive. He's victorious. Amen. Jesus is alive, and with him, I love this, and with him are the 144,000 that we saw in chapter 8, and I gave eight reasons, I'm only going to rehearse a few here, why that is symbolic for the people of God throughout all time, what we call the church militants. You say, how is that 144,000? 12 tribes of the Old Testament 12 apostles of the New Testament by the largest multiplier they had in the first century. The largest singular Roman numeral is a thousand. The Roman Colosseum, a wonder of the ancient world. Anybody ever seen Gladiator? The Roman Colosseum could sit 
a mind-blowing amount of people, 65,000 people. That was massive amount. It was unheard of in a single place in that day. And now John looks and he sees double that. Why? Because it's just a, a crazy amount of people. And he sees this army, and they are doing what? They're standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion with the mark of God on their foreheads, sealed by the Spirit, the true Godhead, representing the Father, Son, Spirit, in contrast to the Satanic Trinity. And the irony of this holy army, this holy army, is we wage war. We are in a holy war that has weird connotations, but we are in a holy war, and the irony of this holy war is God's army doesn't conquer by shedding the blood of its enemies. It does not conquer by shedding the blood of its enemies. We conquer the same way the lamb conquered, by spilling our own blood if necessary, so our enemies might find life. And in so doing, what looks like a defeat actually ends up being the very means through which victory is wrought and the gospel is advanced and enemies of the gospel repent and believe and follow the Lamb as well. And what are they doing? Oh man, they're singing. They're singing. That's what this army is doing. They are singing praises to the Lamb. Beloved, even in our darkest days, we have great reason to sing because our names are written in the book of life. I'm so thankful for Nick Tanaka, who leads us in worship, and regularly reminds us the most important, vital instrument in the life of the church is our voice. Is our voice. We're going to sing in a few minutes, and beloved, be that army and sing. Sing loud. Sing out in praise to God. They're remaining faithful to him. They're not compromising with idolatrous worship in verse 4. That's what that image is about, of them being virgins. And so those who would say that these are literally 144,000 also, if you're consistent in your interpretation, you have to say these are 144,000 Jewish virgin males as well, because that's what this says. But it's, I don't think that's the picture here. It is symbolism for they are pure. They have not compromised their faith with the surrounding idolatry of the culture. God's people often, God often used metaphors of adultery for, sp for spiritual idolatry in the Old Testament. That's what's being pictured here. These, this army is faithful. They are remaining pure to Christ. And they follow the Lamb wherever He goes, even to death. Let me ask you, does this characterize your life? Do you follow the lamb wherever he goes? Or do you only follow him for two hours on a Sunday morning? God's people follow him everywhere. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. Allow me to close with an illustration and a story illustration, one of the absolute worst places to be in a battle is where? The valley and the low point. Strategically, you always want what? The high ground, 
the mountaintop. And that's what John shows us in this hostile world full of pain and suffering. He looks up and he sees Jesus has the high ground. His followers have the high ground. And it gives us great hope. That's exactly what we need to see. Today, a year ago, was Resurrection Sunday. Beautiful day. We had the egg hunt. We had two services last year because we had a church plan and the church was uh, just, we needed two services for capacity reasons. And that year we had the egg hunt in between the services. So I had preached the first service that morning. It was my first time ever doing two sermons back to back. And so I was interested to see how it would go. And then the egg hunt was about to begin. It was a beautiful egg hunt. None of you knew it at the time, but my wife was pregnant. At the time, I was notified that she was bleeding, likely miscarrying our child. And she did. Beginning of the egg, egg hunt, she was miscarrying our child. And so there, in between the two services, our hearts were crushed. Nobody knew it. Small handful. Very painful day. Went numb after the rest of that morning, just trying to function and execute what had to be done. That was one year ago. The Lord also took our next child in August. What was our hope in that? I say that not so you can say, oh, poor Pastor Randy. I say that so you know, I know suffering with you. It's not just something I have to preach. I know many of you in here suffer under hardship and pain. Some of you very frequently all of us are left wondering, where is hope when the darkness weighs heavy on your soul? And we can say from Revelation 14 and Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So I ask you this morning, and I offer it to you, beloved, where does your help come from this morning? Where does your hope come from this morning? Where is your happiness coming from this morning? Where is your holiness coming from this morning? Lift up your eyes of faith this Resurrection Sunday, KBC, and see the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. He is risen, beloved, and he is risen indeed. And if you will believe in him, if you're here and you will come back to him, he will forgive all your transgressions and grant you life eternal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word that contains great promises that can sustain us amidst great pain. I pray 
you would draw many to yourself this morning. If there are any here who don't know you or have drifted in their walk, may they come back today, not tomorrow, today. May they come back. And Father, may you be honored as we sing your praises and your worship. In Jesus' name, amen.